the things that affluence can do for you is it can cause you to lose perspective. It's where ancient Israel was. They were having a uh, prosperous time in the days of Amos, and they had more than they ever had, and because of that, they really kind of lost sight, and they lost perspective. I, I don't know where uh, you are from. Uh, many of you I know are from this area. I'm from East Tennessee, and uh, Dolly Parton's from where I'm from. I don't know if you knew that or not, but we went to the same high school, and her nieces and nephews went all through elementary school with me, and uh, Dolly's sister-in-law was my fourth grade teacher, so I grew up in the shadow of Dolly all the time. And uh, I, don't, I don't agree with all of her theology, and I'm not saying she's a role model in area, every area of her life, but there were a few things that I learned about Dolly and just saw growing up with her that this really, I thought, were admirable. And one of those things was, is no matter how big Dolly got, and, and I don't know if you realize this or not, but she's bigger today around the world than she is even in America uh, and she's uh, in Australia. She packs out the biggest stadiums that they have in the UK. When she does concerts in London, she she packs out the biggest venues that they have. Today, uh, Dolly's estimated net worth is around uh, four hundred million dollars. And if she was here today, she would probably say something like, "Not bad for a dumb blonde that grew up on welfare." That's probably what Dolly would say, because Dolly never really forgot where she where she came from. Uh, I saw her do so many things in our community and, and contribute. When I graduated high school, in fact, Suzanne and I, our first date was to go meet Dolly in person and receive our $500 check for graduating high school because every single graduate in all high schools in her whole county, every single one of us, she personally handed us a check for $500 to try to encourage us to graduate and to finish school. When uh, Suzanne was in the band, they always had the newest, nicest uniforms and equipment because Dolly was in the band. And Anytime they did anything, Dolly just wrote a check and replaced everything for them. And when my kids were born, they got a, a book. From the, every month they got a book, from the time they were born to the time they started school. And so did every other child that was born in our county. And Dolly paid for every single one of those books. So successful that the governor of Tennessee and now other places are trying to copy her literacy program and send books to children growing up in their community. It always amazes me. She, she never really uh, forgot where she came from. There was a second thing that I thought was really impressive about her. She is loyal to a fault. Today, she travels with a personal assistant. That same personal assistant has been with her since the third grade. Judy was her elementary school friend, and they have been together this entire time, never separated. She married a man who was an asphalt contractor. They met in a laundromat, and two weeks later, they got married. Some people might say, well, that, that's, that's destined to, to break up. But yet today, in uh, spite of so many Hollywood marriages and, and Nashville marriages that don't make it, they're still married to this, to this day. In 2008, when the economy was on a major downturn, and in Atlanta and other places around the world, we experienced a real... Uh, crash in the housing market, Dollywood wasn't able to stay in the black. I mean, you don't buy season tickets to Dollywood if you can't make your house payment, do you? And they asked Dolly how long they were going to stay open, and she said, as long as we can afford to keep the park open, it'll stay open because all my people would lose their jobs if we shut it down. Loyal, loyal to a, to a fault. And I think about those, those characteristics of of not forgetting where you come from and not losing perspective and being loyal. Well, ancient Israel could have learned a lot from Dolly. 
because they forgot where they came from. They forgot that it was the Lord that gave them the promised land. They forgot that it was the Lord that provided for them in the wilderness. They forgot that it was the Lord that brought them out of Egypt. And and instead of loyalty, they were giving lip service to God. They still went to the temple. They said a prayer, sang a song, and dropped some change in the plate. But they left there and they did whatever they wanted to do and lived any way that they wanted to live. And so instead of living for God and dying to self, they were lying to God and gratifying self. And the, the thing that's always been shocking to me is that as I, as I study the Bible, and, and much of the Bible was written about a time when, when people had a very different culture than we do. And so there's so much of it that is, that is in every way foreign to us. But the more that I begin to understand the culture so that I can better understand exactly what was happening and what people were talking about, the more that I realize that, that nothing of substance has ever really changed. In fact, as I look around in America today, I see the same problems that people in ancient Israel were struggling with. The same problems. And so what God was calling them to is he was calling them to have a a real faith. Not a false faith that put on a good show for everybody, but a real faith that would actually change their lives and transform who they were and cause them to live differently. It's the same today. God is calling us to have a real faith. He's, He's not calling us to... to to simply join a church or attend or be seen or to wear a cross or put a fish on our car. God is calling us to live a completely different life so that our life is totally surrendered to him. And when we truly believe in God, it will change every aspect of our life. That's what real faith does. It transforms who we are and it guides what we do. So Amos chapter 2, verses 9 through 16 is the verses that we're looking at today. Amos chapter 2, verses 9 through 16. I want to ask you, would you join me in standing as we read God's word together? Here's what the Lord said to the people of Israel through the prophet Amos and what he says to us today through his written word. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and who led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bowl shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. For he and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that we would hear this sobering warning that you gave Israel. And God, I pray that in the day that awaits us, we might stand. 
because of your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. God reminds us here that real faith is a response to his redemption. That's what he's talking about. And the Amorite, that may not mean anything to you. The Egyptians, that may not mean anything to you. But to ancient Israel, they were living in a land that had once been dominated by Amorites and other uh, people indigenous to that area. And God had given them the land. And God makes it clear that it was they were not the ones that took the land. God gave them the land. And there was a time that they were living in literal slavery and bondage in Egypt. And God delivered them out. And what God is saying to the nation of Israel, he's saying, you have forgotten where you came from and how you got here. I don't know if you've ever heard this saying or not, but uh, back home we used to say, if you ever see a turtle on a fence post, you'll know one thing for sure, it didn't get there by itself. And so it was with Israel. As they were living in the promised land, living in prosperity, had everything that the world had to offer luxurious homes, plenty to eat, wealth, and they forgot that they did not get there by themselves. And so they began to play church. They went to the temple, they sang the songs, they gave their offering, and they left, and they lived however they wanted to live because they forgot that God had redeemed them and God had brought them to that point in their life. You see, when they come to the promised land that they were currently occupying, God gave it to them. He gave it to them. You think about the story of Jericho, one of the best illustrations of the complete inadequacy of the Israel army and the complete sufficiency of the power of God. As they went into Jericho, they were completely overwhelmed by the size of that city. And yet this city had great walls and great defenses and an army. God just told them to march around, give a shout, blow a trumpet, just follow my directions. This is what God said, just follow my directions. And we know how the story ends. If we've grown up in church, the walls came tumbling down. They didn't scale the walls. They didn't bust through the walls. They didn't bring the walls down. God brought the walls down. All God asked them to do was simply be faithful and obedient and trust in him, and he would give them the land. Psalm 105, 9 through 10, the psalmist talks about this, about the gift of the promised land. He says, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, listen to these words, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. I will give the land of Canaan. They didn't earn it. They didn't buy it. They didn't win it over. God gave it to them. They had to fight. That was their, their role, but God won the victories for them. And so God gave them this promised land, and they forgot that it was God who delivered them from the hands of the Amorites. It was God who delivered them from the nation of Israel. And friend, you and I, I think it's easy sometimes for us to forget that it was God who delivered us from our sin and brought us to where we are today. If you're living a righteous life today, it's only because God forgave you and gave you the Holy Spirit in order to lead you to live the life that you now live. It's by the grace of God. It's his gift that we have what we have. And we don't want to become like Israel and forget 
how we got where we are. God gave the promised land to Israel and God gives us salvation. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the land in the Old Testament is never really about land. It was about God giving a promise and keeping a promise. And the promised land of the Old Testament is just a mere shadow of the promised land that God has in store for us in heaven. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. And listen to this phrase. It is the gift of God. It's a gift. God said to ancient Israel, I'm going to give you the promised land. And God says to us, I'm going to give you salvation. He gives us gifts. We don't earn them. We don't deserve them. He he gives them to us because he is gracious God. And so verse 9 says, it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Anybody that makes it into heaven will not have anything to brag about. Those of us that go, go because of the grace of God, because of his forgiveness and his mercy and the work that he does in our life to give us salvation. And so the nation of Israel forgot that God had given them the promised land. And that's why he says, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorites. And it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He reminds them that the life that they now live is completely inconsistent with anybody that would understand what he has done for them. You see, our lives should be lived in thankfulness for the gifts of God. Thankfulness. Paul speaks about this in Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Listen to what he says. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. But listen to this phrase here. It describes the attitude in which we do this. He says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. With thankfulness. When we come together and we worship, one of the things that we do is we express thankfulness to God. When we sing the songs about what God has done for us, we sing them so that we might give thanks to God for what he's done for us. We remember what he has done. So verse 17 says, And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And here's the phrase again. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul says when we come together in the New Testament church and we sing songs, we sing songs to give thanks to God. And when we leave everything that we say and everything that we do, we ought to do in the name of Jesus giving thanks to God. You see, when we begin to understand that God has saved us, then we live our life in gratitude to him. We don't do good things in order to be saved. We can't buy our salvation. We don't do things in order to pay God back for our salvation. We, we don't even really have anything to offer. But we do the things that we do out of gratitude to God. And so when we remember where we came from and we remember how we got here in our life, then it causes us to live a life of thankfulness to God. Real faith will also lead us to seek and to follow the Lord. Amos called out the nation of Israel for, for two spiritual areas in their life in which they had oppressed the work of God, the Nazarites and the prophets. And so listen to what he says in verses 11 and 12. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? 
But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Well, the Nazarite was, was a vow. And the Bible tells us about it in Numbers 6, verses 1 through 4. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or woman makes a special vow, and here's the vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, and, and now he's going to give stipulations. He says, first of all, verse 3, he shall set, separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink. And he shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried, all the days of his separation. He shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. So in the Old Testament, there was an Azrite vow when people would set themselves apart for service to the Lord. You'll remember perhaps the most famous Nazarite of the Old Testament was Samson. Because not only were they to refrain from alcohol, they were to refrain from cutting their hair. And later he revealed this to Delilah, and this is how the Philistines overtook him. So Samson took this Nazarite vow. And in the days of Amos, people were still taking Nazarite vows but what took place was the people instead of encouraging them and supporting them the people were enticing them and oppressing them it says here that you made the Nazarites drink wine the problem with that is that they had vowed not to do so so a group of people that have set themselves apart for service to the Lord and instead of encouraging that and Pressing them on, they were interfering and they were keeping the people from keeping their very vows. And then the Bible tells us here that God gave them prophets, but they commanded them not to prophesy. It says in verse 12, But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. You see, false faith wants to direct God, but real faith seeks God's direction. The reason that they commanded the prophets not to prophesy is because they didn't like what they had to say. And I've observed in a few thousand years, absolutely nothing's changed. We still have people today that have no desire to really truly hear from the Lord. In fact, Paul told us this would be the case in Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.2. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And here's what he says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. I think it's fair to say we're already there. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Micah, who is another Old Testament prophet, he he uh, mockingly described the prophet that his people were looking for. In Micah 2.11, he says, If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. Well, so it is today. I, I, I've noticed that one of the fastest ways to draw a crowd is to, to really abandon the word of God and tell people what they want to hear. And there's, there's, just, there's just no question about it today. The, the, the biggest preachers and the biggest churches with the biggest ministries, uh, many of them preach so little truth. 
they tell people, God wants you to be healthy and God wants you to be wealthy. And the more you give, the more you'll get. When I was in Atlanta, Creflo Dollar was just right down the road from me. I don't know if you heard of Creflo. He was, uh, he was uh, raising money for a new jet recently. The, the other two in his fleet had gotten a few years old. I think some of the leather seats had cracked and stuff. And so he needed $54 million for a, for a new jet. And I'm sure he probably got it. Creflo had a, had a row of cars, Rolls Royce and everything. And although you and I might be embarrassed, in Creflo's theology, he was proud because it was a sign that God had blessed him. And he, he preached, the more you give, the more you will receive. People like this message. People like money. People like money. Recently heard of one television preacher that you've probably seen and heard of. He told his congregation one day, broadcast it to millions of people. He said, it doesn't matter what you've done or who you've done it with. God is not angry with you. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. And so Amos said, you told the prophets not to prophesy. Micah said, if we had a preacher that was full of wind and lies that just preached about drinking, you'd love him. Paul says there's going to come a time, a day, when people will no longer endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears that will gather people around them, that will tell them what they want to hear. And so I just decided a long time ago, I heard Adrian Rogers say something one time, and it's so powerful, I, I thought about it often. He said, I'd rather be hated for the truth than loved for a lie. And we're in desperate need of churches today that actually teach the truth whether it's from the pulpit or in the Sunday school class or one-on-one for members, we're in desperate need of teachers that love people enough to tell them the truth. Because you see, real faith wants to be directed by God. It doesn't want to direct God. The people in that day, they didn't want the prophets to prophesy because they didn't want to hear from God because they'd already heard from God and they didn't like what he had to say the first time because they had forgotten where they came from and they had become dependent upon their wealth and upon themselves. But you see, real faith, when we truly believe in God, real faith relies solely upon God. God told them about a time that was coming in which they were going to go into exile. That's what he's prophesying to them and predicting. You and I, we're not going into exile. We live at a different time in history. But there is a day of judgment coming. And the warnings to Israel is the same warning to us today that we need to be prepared for what lies ahead. And so in verses 13 and 14, he's describing the futile efforts of those that try to resist his discipline through the coming exile. He says in verse 13, Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of cheese presses down. The Lord literally said to the nation of Israel, I'm about to put you in your place. And so it is with every arrogant scoffer in the world. There's coming a day when the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's coming a day when we will all be put in our place. Best to get there on our own through humility and confession. He says, flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand. He who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. But he was talking about the Assyrian invasion that would soon come. And the entire nation of Israel would be carried off into exile. 
By the way, they would never recover. The Babylonian captivity of Judah, they would come back, but the Assyrians, they completely annihilated the northern kingdom so that those that survived were dispersed and intermarried, and that's where the Samaritans come from. They were the, as the Jews in the southern kingdom called them, the half-breeds, those that were intermarried and left over from the northern kingdom. And see, God was telling them that when this day comes, there's not going to be anything you can do to save yourself. Psalms 97.3 talks about what it must be like for those who stand before the Lord. It says, fire goes before him and burns up all his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. Then listen to verse 5. He says, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Someday you and I are going to stand face to face with God. We're going to stand before the God that the Bible says to the mountains, the mountains melt like wax before him. And none of us will be able to stand on our, on our own. Revelation 6, 12 through 17, John describes the day when, when unlike the Assyrian invasion of the nation of Israel that Amos is prophesying about, when God pours out his wrath on the earth. You see, the Bible says that God has delayed his wrath so that you and I might have time to come to repentance. But just because it's delayed does not mean that it is removed. One day it will come. And John tells us about it in Revelation 6, 12. He says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 17, listen to this. For the great day of their wrath has come. Listen to this phrase. And who can stand? God said to the nation of Israel, the Assyrians are coming. You may be a mighty warrior. You may be great with the bow. You may be the strongest man in your nation. But when the Assyrians come, they're going to overpower you. They're going to take you away. And just as those in the Old Testament missed out on the promised land, that land that was promised in order to foreshadow what God was going to promise us in heaven, there'll be many that will miss out on heaven. Because when we stand before God in his judgment, as John says, who can stand? Friend, in our own power, none of us can stand, but we have one who has stood before us, Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in 1 John 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, listen to this, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Who will be able to stand? Well, Jesus is able to stand. And when we come to believe and put our trust in him, he stands in our place. Israel could not stand against the coming exile in their own strength. And you and I cannot stand against the coming judgment, but we have one who stands in our place. 
Jesus Christ. As we gather in this room today, many of us are here who are righteous. We're forgiven. We've been redeemed and we have the hope of heaven awaiting us. But friend, we didn't get here on our own. We got here because God loved us so much that he sent his own son to die for us. We got here that because even when he looked at us and saw our sin, he still loved us and made it possible for us to be forgiven. We got here because there was a time in our life that the Holy Spirit drew us to him and we responded in faith. And this faith was not of our own doing, it was a gift of God. And if we begin to understand how we got here, surely we want to live a life of gratitude to God, worshiping him and praising him for what we've done. And when we understand that salvation is a gift from God, let us never boast about our salvation or about what lies ahead, but let us fully rely upon God and depend upon him. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you love us and you care about us more than we can imagine. And Lord, I pray that even though the, the least of us today are wealthy by the world's standards, help us not to become deceived by the fact that we have a place to stay and plenty to eat. But Lord, may we live a life of gratitude and thanksgiving, honoring and, play, and praising you by the decisions that we make. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Do you know that the, the passage that I read earlier talks about that salvation is a free gift. If you've never received that gift, you know that you can today. You see, if you'll confess your sin to God and ask for forgiveness, he'll forgive you. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he, he paid every penalty that you and I owe. And he offers, he offers us the free gift of salvation. But it's up to us whether we want to receive it or not. Do you know that right now if you were to pray in sincerity, God would hear you and he would answer your prayer. So you say, Pastor, I don't, I, I don't really know what lies ahead for me. Maybe some of you, as I read that passage from Revelation, it, it, it frightened you. Friend, for, for those of us that are, in, that are in Christ Jesus, we don't have any reason to be frightened. We don't have any reason to be frightened because he has removed God's wrath from us. And so I want to encourage you today, if you've never made a decision to truly trust God, maybe here today and you're just a really good person and you're, you're the nicest guy where you work and you do things for widow neighbors and all these other things, that, that's wonderful, but it won't save you. It's just not enough to pay for your sin. Let's trust in God to pay for our sin. And then let's do all those things out of gratitude for what he's done for us. Maybe you're here today and you've been a believer for a long time. But you realize there are things in your life that are not consistent with a life of gratitude and thanksgiving to God. If that's you and God's convicted you about something in your life, would you confess it to him and sin today? so that he might use us and so that his work might be unhindered in our lives. Friend, what, what, whatever you need to do, let, let's do it now as we sing. Let's stand together.